In the famous passage when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to the Jordan, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God in fulfilling the Passover imagery. And in Revelation chapter 5, he is pictured once again as the Lamb slain for our sin. He is the center of what happens there in Revelation 5, the center of worship in heaven. And we're going to learn more about worthy is the Lamb today on Walk in Truth. These are the teachings of Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Before we get started with today's message, you can learn more about Pastor Michael, the online store, and podcast when you visit walkintruth.com. Now, here's part one of Revelation 5, Worthy is the Lamb. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. Open it to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 5 tonight, Revelation 5. We're looking at a message called Worthy is the Lamb. We are going to now shift gears a bit in the book of Revelation and start to look at the scroll, the seven-sealed scroll that is uh, well known to many of you who have studied the Bible. Many of you have heard about the seventh seal. This is a, a picture of something that we think may be close to what John saw, and it is a scroll that has seven seals. And you'll notice that there's four uh, horsemen there, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We'll get into martyrdom, cosmic signs, and then we're going to get into the seventh seal, which I'm going to make a case for is the beginning of the day of the Lord or the judgment of God. And so this is where we're headed. But tonight we are literally going to go to heaven. How many of you want to go to heaven? How many of you want to go now? Cool. Cool. I heard somebody say, a lot of people want to go to heaven, but they don't want to die. <laughs> so, and, and I totally understand that. But anyway, uh, but we are literally going to go to heaven in this sense. We're going to go up to heaven in Revelation 5 and see one of the more detailed descriptions of what happens in heaven. And it's, it's a glorious text. Uh, in fact, uh, I think we could just stay here, you know, for the next six months and just muse on the beauty of this scene uh, it's a bit overwhelming, actually, when you begin to really understand what's going on here and you begin to see the worship of Jesus Christ in the center of all that happens in heaven. But before we go there, let's pray. Father, as we uh, study your word, it's just so beautiful to know that it's inspired by God. And, and many people, you know, have done all kinds of different things today, Lord, fought freeways, maybe have gone through a difficult day or maybe even a difficult season of life, but whatever it may be, Lord, I know that one thing that you do for us is when we are able to stop and move our eyes away from this jungle that we often live in and look up to heaven and see the author and perfecter of our faith and fix our eyes on things above, not the things of the earth, Lord. And it's hard, we confess it, but tonight we're going to get a glimpse into heaven and it's really going to I pray, cheer our souls and encourage us. And, you know, when we think about the position of these chapters, we think about seven churches that were going through their own difficulty, struggles and martyrdom and false teaching and so many more things. And it's even true today, Lord, that your church has to face the world, the flesh and the devil, and it can be difficult and taxing. But Lord, you are on your throne. And when we get a vision of heaven, I think it puts everything else in perspective and so let that be true tonight. Let us just kind of lay aside the things that so easily burden and entangle us and let us run this race with endurance as we refix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith. And we just pray you'll take us where you want us to go tonight. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. We're in Revelation 5 as we move into a message called Worthy is the Lamb. And John says these words as he's already taken us into heaven. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, And the, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So the door was open in heaven. And then John began to describe the heavenly scene, and he described the one who sat on the throne with refracted colors, luminous, incredible colors like Sardis. And he described an emerald uh, rainbow that was around the throne and something like a sea of crystal. And and these descriptions that we see in other places in the Bible. And now he's going to give us a little bit more detail of this one who sits on the throne with a specific focus Revelation 5.1, he says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. Uh, The New King James says a scroll, and I'll explain why the difference in a moment. But uh, the Greek word here for a book or a scroll is biblion. When you hold your Bible, uh, this, this, this book that you have here, biblion or Bible, just simply means book. So this is the Holy Bible, because it is the holy book. It's actually 66 books, right? But that, is, that word for book here is the same as the word for Bible. It's biblion in Greek. And, but here, it's probably uh, to be rendered scroll because books were not created until the second century AD. And the book of Revelation was written probably around 95 AD, so that it was written in the first century. So there were no books then. What did they have? Well, they had scrolls. And they would unroll a scroll to read scripture. And if you've ever seen uh, Torah scrolls, for example, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have an idea of what this is about. So a scroll was uh, something that was wrapped up, and then it could be unwrapped and read. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've done any study on that, you know, gave us uh, manuscripts of the Old Testament that were a thousand years earlier than the ones that we possessed at that time, and that was discovered in the late 1940s. And so uh, this, is, this is the scroll, and it's in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We would argue that's the Father. And let me just say out front, uh, just so you don't get confused, that what John is doing is trying to describe spiritual realities in physical terms. Remember, God is spirit. He is not a man. Now, Jesus took on a body, and we'll talk about the implications of that, as we look at heaven. But God the Father is essentially spirit. John 4, 24, Jesus gave the only description of his Father. He said, uh, he is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. So don't get confused when you see these uh, descriptions. What John is trying to do is describe spiritual realities in physical terms. So when you hear scholars, theologians, and pastors say that The Bible uses anthropomorphic terminology. That's just simply a big 50-cent term that means that the Bible does use human terms to try to convey spiritual realities because that's the best we got. That's how we're going to best try to understand who God is. So John describes one who is seated on this throne. He's holding something in his right hand. And what we have is human terms to describe spiritual realities. How all of this looks when we get there and how God the Father will look to us and how the Trinity will appear to us 
remains somewhat of a mystery, but we're going to get a little bit of insight into this right now. And and as I mentioned, the focus will become, in chapters 5 and 6, this seven-sealed scroll. It will be unrolled and opened, and the seals broken one by one in chapters 6 through 8. That's what's ahead of us, and then we'll be going through the seals and talking about those uh, as well. The question that emerges in verse 2 of chapter 5 A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice said, who is worthy to open the book or the scroll and to break its seal? So all of a sudden, an angel, a strong angel, maybe Gabriel or Michael, someone in that category, a strong angel began to proclaim with a loud voice and he's asking about one who is worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals. Several times in the chapter, The question will be asked, one who can look into it, who can see its contents and unroll it as it were. And we'll talk about the meaning of the scroll in a second. But the finishing of the redemption of the world is what is at hand here. Let me explain how this works. So your redemption is done. Your sins were paid for in full at the cross. But theologians say that our redemption still has facets of it that are yet to be completed. And so they put it in in these terms, and they're pretty easy to remember. It's already and not yet. You might want to write that down because this is going to come up over and over in your Bible. Already and not yet. What's already done is that your sins were paid for in full at the cross. What has not occurred yet is the redemption of your body, i.e. the rapture and the resurrection, namely the resurrection, So Romans 8 uses this idea of the redemption of your body. So at some point, even though your soul has been redeemed, your body is going to be resurrected or experience redemption in the future. The down payment for that hope or reality is the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The day of resurrection is yet future to us, so it's an already and not yet. We know it's coming. We know it's been guaranteed. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. And yet there's a not yet aspect of our redemption. And that is the resurrection of our bodies, the regeneration of planet Earth, the thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ are all not yets. They all fall into the big category of redemption. This is what God is going to do. uh, But they uh, have not yet occurred in full. Uh, Take a peek at a few verses. 2 Peter, just a few pages back, Peter deals with this, and he says these words, 2 Peter 3, um, and dealing with, you might be asking the question, what's the holdup? Okay, if if my sins were paid for at the cross 2,000 years ago, what's the holdup? Well, part of the holdup is that God is not willing that any perish, but all come to what? Repentance. If he would have come back in the 1500s, I got news for you. You ain't in the kingdom. If he would have come back for some of you in the 1970s or 80s or even for some the 90s, you aren't a Christian. You're not in the kingdom. So God has fixed a day when he will judge the world, Acts 17, 30, and 31. And here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3. He says, know this, 2 Peter 3, 3, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. They will be saying, where is the promise of his coming or his second coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. Pastor Michael Lance would like to invite your kids to Vacation Bible School at Living Truth Christian Fellowship in Corona. This year, kids learn about the Israelites' time in Egypt. They'll explore God's goodness and celebrate a ferocious faith that powers them through this wild life. Each day at VBS, kids travel through rotations with crafts, music, and games, all for the purpose of teaching kids stories from the Bible and immersing them in new adventures. This week-long Vacation Bible School will begin July 8th, and it's only $10 per child. Register your little explorer today by visiting livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Make sure you subscribe to the Walk in Truth podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. Take a peek at a few verses, 2 Peter, just a few pages back. Peter deals with this, and he says these words, 2 Peter 3, um, and dealing with, you might be asking the question, what's the holdup? Okay, if if my sins were paid for at the cross 2,000 years ago, what's the holdup? Well, part of the holdup is that God is not willing that any perish, but all come to what? Repentance. If he would have come back in the 1500s, I got news for you. You ain't in the kingdom. If he would have come back for some of you in the 1970s or 80s or even for some the 90s, you aren't a Christian. You're not in the kingdom. So God has fixed a day when he will judge the world, Acts 17, 30, and 31. And here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3. He says, know this, 2 Peter 3, 3, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust. They will be saying, where is the promise of his coming or his second coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire. This is the day of the Lord judgment kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men, those who reject Jesus Christ. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Why does God, what's the holdup you might ask? Why does God allow people to mock and joke about the second coming? Because more and more people are being swept into the kingdom. And for me, it's been in the last several decades that I became a Christian, became a Christian in my early 20s. For some of you, you have been a Christian for six months or a year. Some of you may be even uh, just considering the claims of Jesus Christ. And so God is patient. In the book of Luke, uh, Jesus describes these last days. And uh, if you turn there, Luke 21, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
the setting of Revelation 5 is set in the context of the kinsman redeemer. If you happen to be attending here on Sundays, we're going through the book of Ruth and looking at this idea of the kinsman redeemer. We'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus, as he describes the last days in Luke 21, uh, verse 25 says these words. There will be signs, 21:25 of Luke, in sun and moon and stars. Upon the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear at, and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, Jesus is speaking, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, this is a glory cloud, with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because what's coming? Your redemption is drawing near. Now, when scholars begin to look at this idea of redemption, you can write down for your notes Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where we have the pledge of the Holy Spirit with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Write down Ephesians 4, 30 where it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The second coming of Jesus Christ is described as a day of redemption, a day to complete the process of redemption. The already not yet process will be completed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. What will occur there is God will complete his redemption of his people and he will also be redeeming the world. In Romans chapter 8, when Paul's describing creation, he personifies creation, gives it personality, and says that even the creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God because it knows that when you are revealed in resurrection, rapture and resurrection, then the creation will also get a makeover or experience its own type of resurrection. All of this language of the second coming and the return of Christ is uh, kind of phrased in this language of redemption. The Bible is filled with this imagery of redemption. As I mentioned, we are studying it right now in the book of Ruth with the idea of a kinsman redeemer. In uh, scrolls and looking at this, uh, what this represents, I think most of you have heard that the majority of scholars believe that this represents the title deed to the earth. It represents a deed that can only be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. Someone has to have the right and authority to open this scroll, break its seals, and then be able to finish a transaction that is linked to this imagery. Uh, Hebrew title deeds required a minimum of three witnesses and three separate seals, with more important transactions requiring more witnesses and seals. Uh, one writer says, but what is, what is this remarkable scroll? It is nothing less than the, the title deed to the earth itself. This is not explained in the immediate context, but it is clearly the antitype of all the rich typological teaching associated with the divinely specified procedures for land redemption in the Old Testament. So how does this work exactly? The Bible clearly teaches that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So how in the world would God need to buy back the earth if it already belongs to him? Why would there need to be a title deed to the earth? And why would there need to be a redemption of a world that already belongs to God? Well, here's how this works. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the fish and the uh, 
crawling things and the birds of the sky. And man had dominion. And man had a usurper come into paradise and steal that dominion. Adam gave it up, as it were. He was kicked out of the garden. And he gave up that dominion by virtue of his sin. And he lost his position or their position as king and queen of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan is called the god of this world. Some of you may wonder, how, how could Satan be the god of this world? I thought God made the world. God did make the world. It does belong to him. But in some sense, Adam lost it or gave up dominion to another usurper. He lost it. The land was given up. And this is what has occurred. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of places to dig this out. I want you to go to first to the book of Leviticus 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We'll spend a few moments looking at this idea of redemption and land uh, redemption and how this all works. Leviticus 25, look at verse 23. Leviticus 25:23. The land, moreover, 25:23, shall not be sold permanently, for God says, the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. 25.25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell part of his property. Then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means so as to find sufficient... uh, as to find sufficient for its redemption. Then he shall calculate the years since its sale, refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return his property. Here's the essence of it, and I, and I want you to go to Jeremiah uh, 32, and I'll explain the essence of this. So if you owned land as an Israelite, and somehow you lost the land, you became poor, uh, all the way to the book of Jeremiah chapter 32, and you lost it, Even with that loss, it wasn't a permanent loss. It could still be redeemed by a kinsman. Here, I'll use the example of the land of Israel. The land of Israel belongs to God. Would you agree? Okay. However, through the centuries, has Israel always been in that land? The answer is no. In fact, there's a debate even today as to who has the right to Jerusalem. Should the capital of Israel be Jerusalem? Trump wants to move our, uh, what do you call it? Our embassy to Jerusalem, there's debate about that. It's become a hotbed of activity. And and up until uh, our recent past, the Jews weren't even in the land. Did the land belong to God? Yes. But the people of Israel forfeited the land. Yes, it's amazing how relevant the book of Revelation is for today and what's happening today. And yes, Jerusalem did fall to the Romans in AD 70, and the Jewish people were scattered, but amazingly, incredibly, became a nation again in 48, recaptured Jerusalem in 1967, in a lot of our lifetimes, and God is moving. And there's amazing things going on. We're going to ask you to tune in, because I could preach the whole sermon now, but we're going to ask you to tune in tomorrow to get more on this. But hey, this is Pastor Michael Lance, and this Thursday we are going to celebrate Independence Day. I'm sure you've been watching maybe the first 
batch of political debates going on, shots being fired, you know, a lot of the, uh, we have to just say the talking heads giving the solutions. But the question is, where is our country really? You know, I look at the United States of America today with a large amount of concern about where we're headed. And what we really need is we need to come back to God. We, we need a spiritual revival in this country. And let's not forget that it's happened before in tumultuous, confusing times, and it can happen again. Let's be praying that it would happen again and that it would start with us. Hey, I'd like to invite you to tomorrow night's worship service at 7 p.m. at Living Truth Christian Fellowship. We're going to have a guest speaker. His name is Paul Hicks, and he is an incredibly passionate follower of Christ. And he's going to be talking about how to overcome temptation. As we take a break from the book of Job, we all could use this teaching. So come and check it out. Come out to Living Truth Christian Fellowship for the Wednesday night service at 7 p.m. The address is 1009 Arsenal Way. It's 1009 Arsenal Way in the city of Corona, right off the 91 freeway and Lincoln Avenue. You can download our Living Truth app, get the details for all of that and much more when you look for our red logo with the pillars. Now be sure to listen in tomorrow as we continue this incredible teaching in Revelation chapter 5 called Worthy is the Lamb and He is Worthy. I'll join you tomorrow. Until then, may God richly bless you. Remember, to learn more about Pastor Michael, the online store, podcast, or to donate, visit walkintruth.com. And thanks for listening to Walk in Truth, encouraging you to reach out with God's truth to all people.